Have you ever been in a situation where, where someone was talking to you, but you didn't know they were talking to you? Somebody was trying to get somebody's attention and you thought they were talking to somebody else, but it was, it was really you. Or maybe a time when someone was talking to you and they were being dead serious and you didn't know how serious they were being. I know my first day of work as a teacher in Smith Center, Kansas, we, uh, before the kids came, first in-service day, we had to meet in the computer lab because we all had to be trained as teachers on what was then a brand new technology, the computerized gradebook uh, was new. And so we, we all met in the, te- in, the, in the computer lab and I walked in with my giant mug of coffee, you know, big plastic job with a lid on it, sat down by our football coach, Coach Barta, and uh, the computer teacher walked in. It was her classroom. She was leading the, the training. Joan was her name, Joan Nitch, and I grew to, to really love Joan, but she was, shall we say, very direct at times. I'd never met this woman before, and she started the training this way. She said, well, I think it's time to get started, but first, someone needs to tell the new guy that nobody brings drinks in the computer lab. And just like that, too. And it was so direct and so sort of over the top, I thought she was kidding, so I kind of chuckled, and a strange silence fell over the room. And Coach Barta leaned over and said, she ain't kidding, buddy. And I said, oh, okay. So I got rid of it. That was a time she was speaking to me very direct that it wasn't translating. About a year later, I had a couple basketball players, David and Josh, and they found out there were a couple of out-of-town high school girls staying at our local bed and breakfast. And so they were going to try to coax these girls to coming outside and talking. So they went over and they were throwing pebbles at what they thought were their window, was their window in the bed and breakfast. And it wasn't. And suddenly, out of an open window in that summer night, the proprietor of that establishment started yelling, skit, skit, skedaddle. And David, man, he took off like a shot around the corner. And Josh didn't move. And David poked his head back around and said, Josh, what are you doing? Get out of there. And the guy still goes, skit, skedaddle. And Josh said, oh, does he mean get the heck out of here? He's like, Yes. Skit, skit, skedaddle roughly translates to get the heck out of here. He didn't know. He didn't know. One more. You know the story of David and Bathsheba? Where David sinned greatly against um, his wife, Bathsheba, Bathsheba's husband, the nation. God sent the prophet Nathan to confront David with his sin. And Nathan came to David and he told him this story about a wealthy man who had more sheep than you could shake a stick at. But that wealthy man stole the only ewe lamb that this other guy had. And David got really angry. Do you remember that story? David did not know that Nathan was talking about him until Nathan said what? He remembers. Say, you are that man. He was talking to David. He was dead serious. David didn't know. Well, at the very beginning of Romans chapter 2, the Apostle Paul is going to go all, you are that man, on the Roman Christians. 
We've been in the book of Romans several weeks. We've been two weeks in the, the, the beginning section of the body of the letter. And the beginning of the, of the body of this letter that Paul told us is about the gospel. The first section of the letter, Paul's purpose is this, to explain why we need the gospel. And so thus far, it's taken us two weeks to get this far, but Paul's made one major point. And the point is, 118, the wrath of God is being pointed from heaven against ungodly righteous people who suppress the truth. And in the rest of this section, Paul's trying to convince us that's us. God is pointing his wrath toward those of us who suppress the truth. The truth is there is a God who created all this, he created us, and so we are accountable to him. But instead, we exchange the truth that our best life now is one that glorifies God, honors God, thanks God. We exchange that truth for the lie, that's right here in verse 25, for the lie that says, I can, I'll be happier if I ignore God and I make myself the point of my life. God wants my life to be about him. How selfish of him when I can make life about me, which is not at all selfish for me. And once we make that exchange, Paul says that's the wrath of God. God gives them over to the desires of our heart. God says, you are, have convinced yourself what you are chasing is better than me. Have at it. And that's actually the wrath of God. Continued entanglement in enticing sins is the wrath of God. It's as bad as it gets because anything we chase that takes us further away from God, he couldn't do anything worse to us. Now, once we do that, once we make that terrible exchange, we try to make life about getting me as much comfort, popularity, money, sex, whatever it is, for myself, once we do that, our hearts get dark, Paul said. Our minds get depraved. We start doing things we hadn't ought to do, and we don't even know we hadn't ought to do them anymore. And now we get to chapter 2. That's what Paul has said so far. But Paul knows that this letter is going to be read in public meetings. And it's not like this letter got to Rome and they made photocopies of it, Right? They didn't send e a mass email out. Somebody's going to have this letter, and in corporate meetings or small meetings, they're going to read this letter from Paul to the Romans. And Paul, like he'll do throughout the book, Paul anticipates what his hearers will be thinking. Paul knows there will be people hearing what he has said in chapter 1, what I just explained about all the, the sins that happen when we exchange the truth of God for the lie. As he starts to make that list that we read last week, Paul knows there will be people in that audience going, yeah, Paul, that's right. You let them have it, Paul. It's about time somebody talked about all the sin that's being sinned around here. It's about time that we said something to those and in the list homosexuals, 
the idol worshipers, right? The people that don't love God like I do. Paul knows that there's somebody in his audience that feels that way. And so rhetorically speaking, what Paul is going to do in today's passage is point at that person and say, hey, you back there in the back, you over there in the side, you are that man. You need this gospel that I'm going to explain later in the book. You need this. As much as anybody else who has sinned more or less than you have. That's today's passage. That's where we're going. Let's read it together. This is just five verses, the beginning of chapter two of the book of Romans. They read this way. Paul says, therefore, you have no excuse. Every one of you who passes judgment. For in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and you do the same yourself, do you suppose that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness? Or do you have contempt for the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. There's our passage cheery little passage that it is. Start in verses 1 and 2, which contain the main idea of the passage. And the main idea of these two verses are, could, could basically be summed up this way. Paul just tells everyone listening, you, whoever you are, you are without excuse before God. You will be condemned before God, if nothing else, for this. You judge, you condemn other people for doing things you do. That's what he says. Now, logically, how do we get there? Just logically speaking, there are people who are more moral than other people. There are people who sin fewer sins than other people who sin more sins. Logically, that has to be true, correct? Just because we might all be equally condemned it does not mean that you know, Jason and Hitler have the same number and same severity of sins, right? And again, Paul knows we all know this to be true. And Paul knows people are hearing uh, the words that he's read so far, the list of sins he's just got done listing, and Paul knows it's really easy to read that list of terrible sins and think, Paul's really not talking to me. I'm glad he's saying it, right? Like, I'm, you ever feel like this? You hear a sermon, you think, man, I'm glad my brother-in-law was here to hear that. Like, he really needed it. It's, it's really easy to, to be there. So in, in verses 18 and 25, the, the, the first kind of example Paul used, people who ignore the fact that there's a God we're accountable to, the first people that make that terrible exchange, 
wind up worshiping idols in ancient history. It's pretty easy to read that and think, well, that's not about me, even though bad news it is. We're all idolaters. Then in verses 26 and 27, after that, Paul used homosexuality as a, uh, an example of mankind in general. Once we start just chasing after whatever will make me happy, our desires get so twisted that we're, we're, we're doing stuff we don't even think is wrong anymore. It comes so natural. It's pretty easy to read that section and think, well, that one's not about me. And then Paul gave this long list of stuff that's it's harder to think that that's not about me, but it can be done. Because in verses 28 through 32 of chapter 1, Paul gave us this list that happens when we make that terrible exchange. We make life about me. Before long, we're filled with, Paul said, envy, murder, strife, deceit, hostility, gossip. We talk bad about other people. Uh, we hate God. We become rude and disrespectful, arrogant, boastful, disobedient to parents. We don't keep our word heartless. Now, if you're really honest, it's hard to not find yourself in that list somewhere, right? But it can be done. Because after all, Paul said the people he's talking about are filled with those things. pretty easy to say, you know, I make my mistakes. Like I occasionally have done those things, but I'm not, I'm not filled with those things. And that's why Paul starts chapter two for the second time in this book by saying this, whoever you are, you are without excuse. Whoever you are, oh man, oh woman, oh person, Whoever you are, I want you to know before God, you are without excuse. You know what that means? That means nobody, not you, not me, not anyone, not, no, no matter what culture somebody was raised in, what faraway island they were born on, no one is going to stand before the God of the universe in judgment and be able to offer an excuse as to why God shouldn't condemn them in judgment. Remember what Paul is setting, what Paul's doing in this section is explaining the need for the gospel. And the reason we need the gospel is because everyone is lost apart from it. And why he says we are all lost apart from it here is important and it makes sense. You're without excuse before God. Nobody's going to stand before God and offer an excuse as to why you can't condemn me. We have heard these excuses. We have said these excuses. You ever said something like this or heard something like this? God, you could not rightfully condemn someone according to what's written in the Bible if they never saw a Bible. You ever hear that? God, there's no way you should send me to eternal condemnation based on the law when I never read the law. It was, there's never even a copy in the country where I was born. You cannot rightly condemn me for what I did or didn't do with Jesus when I never heard about Jesus. Paul answers that argument right here. Paul says God does not have to condemn people based on any of those things. 
God can righteously, rightly condemn someone even if they've never heard about any of those things. And here's why. All, all God would have to do, someone stands before God, gives that excuse, never read it, never saw it, never heard of him. You can't condemn me. God, all God would have to say is, okay, I want to be fair. You put yourself in my place. Right? You made the terrible exchange. You pursued what would make you happy. You thought, acted like you were God. So here's what we're going to do. I'm just going to use your standards of what's right and wrong for your judgment. Let's read these again, these verses. Therefore, you are without excuse, whoever you are, when you judge someone else. For on whatever grounds you judge someone else, you condemn yourself, because you who judge practice the same things you condemn other people for. Now we know that God's judgment is in accordance with the truth against those who practice such things. The 20th century theologian Francis Schaeffer, brilliant man, he said these verses, I always use his spiel on these verses because it's just the best and it makes the most sense. He said these verses are all about the tape recorder. He said it's like when, at, when you were conceived or, or when you were born, God implanted a little tape recorder right back here that you never knew was there. It was invisible. Nobody ever saw it. Maybe I should pause to let parents explain to children what a tape recorder is. Right? Why would God write this down on tape? It's so sticky. No. Anyway. And all this tape recorder, this metaphorical tape recorder is for, is every time during your life when you make a moral judgment, that tape recorder picks that up and records it. Every time you get upset, somebody lies to you or about you, and you go, oh, man, that guy is a liar. Somebody should expose that. That gets picked up. Every time you see someone like, oh, she is so deceitful, right? She, oh, she wants people to think she's so Christian and moral, but oh, I wish she would be exposed. I know the truth. That gets, that gets recorded. Every time you see somebody's lazy and it offends you, somebody's a workaholic and that offends you, somebody loves money, somebody is jealous, Somebody is mean, rude, disrespectful, whatever it is. Every time you make a moral judgment, you get offended, you get angry, because that should not be done. That person is wrong. It gets recorded. And then you die. And you stand before God. And suddenly you realize what's about to happen. And you're overcome with the holiness, the righteousness, and the perfection of your Creator. And you think... I can never live up to his standards, but this isn't fair. I didn't know. God will pull out the tape recorder and press play. He said, no, no, wait a minute. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to press play, and I'm going to let your standards of right and wrong be the standards I judge you. If you can pass your own standards of right and wrong, we'll move on to the final exam. How, many, how would you do? How would you do in that judgment? You know where that leaves us? Without excuse. Now, the ultimate standards by which human beings will be judged are God's holy, righteous standards. But we can't even get that far. This is like, like, like a teacher who's given a final exam and a student knows he bombed it. 
Or he gets, you know, the student gets the, the, the final exam handed out and he looks at it and it looks like it's written in Hebrew. Like he doesn't understand a thing of it. And he goes up and he says, this isn't fair. You cannot fail me in this course based on how I do in this final exam. I wasn't here. You didn't tell me the information. You never taught this stuff. This is not fair. Only the teacher goes, like, you haven't been in class all semester. You haven't turned one piece of homework in. The the final exam won't matter at all for you because you failed long before we ever got to this point. That's us. We are so broke. We're so bankrupt before God. Not only can we not approach his standards of right and wrong, we can't even keep our own. Paul says, that's why you have to admit not one single person is going to stand before God and claim, you are wrong if you condemn me. Paul is setting setting the need for the gospel. We need the gospel. This is not how someone gets saved, any of this. This is just understanding how without excuse we are. Now, the solution for verses 1 and 2 are not what today we most generally try to make it. Do you see what the problem Paul says is here? Paul says, the problem is you judge someone else for stuff you also do. Today in our postmodern culture, what, what do we say the, uh, the solution to that is? Just don't judge anyone for anything, right? Don't judge me, bro. Right? It's, it's, every, it's every non-Christian's favorite verse. J- judge not, lest ye be judged. You don't have to be a Christian to know that. Everyone knows that. That's our solution. If I never judge anyone, I can't be guilty according to this standard. That holds zero water. You know why? The tape recorder. Because you do judge others. You do get angry when someone else is wrong. You do know they are wrong and you want to hold them accountable. Even if my standard is nobody should tell anybody they are wrong for anything. As soon as I tell somebody they are wrong for something, I'm without excuse because I have not kept my own standard. We are without excuse. And that, does that make sense? I hope so. Because the rest of it's going to be a problem if not. And that leads Paul to ask a very important question in verse 3. Paul says, and do you think, whoever you are, when you judge people and then you do stuff that you condemn people for, do you think that you will escape God's judgment? Make sure you hear Paul correctly here. Verses 1 and 2 are helpful for me when I think about, man, how can God condemn people who never even heard about the Bible? That's a hard one, right? Well, God just says they can't even keep their own moral standards. That helps me. Does that seem more fair? Yes, but that's not what Paul's saying here. Paul's not saying, you know, poor Chinese people who never heard. Is it okay for God to condemn them? That's not what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, you. He says the word you multiple times. He's shaking you by the shoulders. And he asks you this. Do you think? you are going to escape escape God's judgment? Answer that question. Do you think you're going to stand before God 
Think, God, you surely can't lump me into the condemned category with Osama bin Laden and murderers and terrorists and all these really awful people. I am better than them. Is that how it's going to go down? Do you think you are going to escape God's judgment? It's a really important question. Because until we understand our need for the gospel, we will never accept the gospel. After Paul asked that question, do you think you're going to stand before a holy, righteous God and he's going to say, you know what, Lonnie, you've been such a good dude. I think, I, I think you are good enough. He wants us to come to the right answer, which is, Boy, no, on my own, I'm in real trouble. I know I haven't even kept my own moral standards. I tell people, I get mad all the time. Things that other people say is wrong. If I'm honest with myself, I've done many of those things. That's the answer Paul wants us to come to, but, but just in case. Just in case there's still someone in Paul's audience who's not quite there, who's still holding on to, you know what, I think I'm better than most people, and that might be true. And that's going to be good enough just in case there's somebody still there. In verse, the beginning of verse 4, Paul warns us. He tells us what we are doing if we're still in that mindset. If you are honest and you think you are going to go to heaven someday because you are better than most of the Christians you know, because at least you never did this sin or this sin or this sin or this sin. Paul says that is having contempt, hatred for the wealth of God's kindness. Paul's already told us in the, the main idea of this book, Romans 1, 16 and 17, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only way God's power can be pointed at people where they are saved and not condemned. And now Paul says, if you don't understand, you'll never accept that gift if you don't think you need it. And if you don't think you need it, Paul says, you have contempt for God's kindness. I want to give you an illustration to help you understand why that's true. Let's say this year, 2020, um, Rachel and I come to your house for a couple of meals that you cook. And then this year at Christmas, you go to your, to your mailbox and you find we have, in our kindness, we have given you a gift. And you open the gift and we have got you cooking lessons. <laughs> or, or I take a couple of long drives with you this year. And in my kindness, you open our Christmas card and I have, I have paid for you to attend remedial driving classes. Or... I have gotten you, uh, like, plastic surgery. What would you think? You would have contempt for my kindness. No matter how I meant it, you would hate that gift. Why? You'd be offended that I would even insinuate that you need it. And in those gifts, you might be right. But listen... God has told you there's a gift you need. He gave you the gift of his one and only son crucified 
under the punishment your sins deserve. And God has said, this gift is the only invitation to eternal life. And when you say you don't need the gospel, you are treating his gift like my gift of cooking lessons. How dare you, sir, insinuate that I need that. It's like you're in your house and it is on fire. And the doors and the windows are all blocked. And this is not looking good. And I am going up in flames. And this is bad. And suddenly you hear a loud noise and somebody bashes through the ceiling of your house and lowers in a basket on a rope. Then you see the guy behind the rope and you go, oh, that guy. I hate that guy. Let me tell you what's going to happen if I get in this basket. I'm going to have to hear about what a hero this guy was. And everybody's going to think I was all weak and a sissy. So no way I ain't doing it. I'm going to keep trying to claw through the burning walls of my house. God's the guy with the rope. You ever heard people say religion in general or Christianity specifically is just a crutch for weak people? You ever hear that? Christianity is just a crutch for weak people. Don't believe that. It's not true. It's way worse than that. Crutch implies there's something you can kind of do on your own. Christianity is not a crutch for weak people. It is life for dead people. It is exoneration for guilty people. It is hope for hopeless people. But the gospel is that basket on the end of the only rope that will pull us out of the flames. And we either accept that gift or we have contempt for the one who lowered the basket. That's why Paul says what he says in the last two verses. Last two verses, he said, it's either you either have contempt for his kindness or his kindness is leading you to repentance. Verses four and five read this way. Or do you have contempt for the wealth of God's kindness, forbearance, that's just like, Uh, tolerance and patience. And yet, and you still do not know that God's kindness leads you to repentance. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourselves in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is revealed. According to these verses that, 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 that God has put up with us thus far, that's his forbearance. He just puts up with us. Right? The fact that we haven't just been squashed like bugs, ripped out of the world thus far, is just God patiently forbearing and waiting for us to accept his kindness. And every single day on this earth, for every single person who has not yet accepted that gift, is either just more and more wrath being stored up more and more recording on that tape recorder to be played back at our judgment as proof we should rightly be condemned or it is one more chance to accept the gift of the gospel. That's every day. Paul says it's either contempt for God's kindness or repentance. When Paul says repentance here, repentance is a change of mind. 
it will work its way out and change behavior. But at its heart, it's a change of mind. Here's why it's important. Here's why it's important to understand that right here. Repentance in this context is not you better do better. You better try really hard. You better quit doing this list of bad stuff or God's going to get you. If we've been paying attention so far in Romans, like God's already got us. We have too much on our tape recorder, right? There's no one good enough. The repentance here is not, re not merely repenting of the bad things I've done. It's understanding I've already done too many bad things to be saved. It's changing my mind. He's talking to the moral person. He's talking to the person who has sinned less than other people that he knows. And the repentance is, I better change my mind. I better repent of my righteousness. I better change my mind that I'm going to be okay before God. I'm not. I better throw myself on the mercy of the court and say, if he didn't bear my punishment already, then you are right to cast me into mine. And every day that goes by is more evidence at my judgment or another opportunity to accept the repentance that leads to the gospel. Today we heard the bad news. Right? This, this book's about the good news, the gospel. But until we understand the bad news, we won't accept the good news. If I don't understand I'm a lousy cook, I will never accept cooking lessons. Right? If I don't understand I'm completely lost and without excuse before God, I will not accept the basket he lowers to pull me from the flames. The question Paul asked, do you believe? Do you think you'll be okay before God's judgment on your own? Or do you believe you are without excuse? That not only have, have I ignored and rejected what you say God is right and wrong, I can't even keep my own standards of what I say is right and wrong. I've done things that I would never accept. And someone else, we do it all the time. We do it without even thinking about it. Remember, that's the main idea. We can't even keep our own standards of judgment. Oh, it drives me crazy. I can't stand how much screen time my kids have. They spend so much time in front of their electronics. They waste all day playing video games. And I am going to talk to them about that right after I finish this second hour on Facebook. <laughs> right? I, I hate it. It drives me crazy when somebody tells me how to do my job. Right? Oh, just let me do. I know what I am doing. Stop telling me how to do my job. And by the way, ref, you stink. What, are you blind? Right? My boss is always telling me how I should do my job, but I have plenty of suggestions on how he or she should be doing his. Right? We could do this all day. We're without excuse, which is why we do not want to wait and let one more day go, go by without repentance. Just understanding, accepting, admitting. When I stand before you, God, 
if I just bring my own righteousness and goodness before you, you're going to press play on that tape recorder. You don't even have to. I already know. I'll be without excuse. And then accepting the basket he lowered to save me was only through the cross of Jesus Christ. Just believe. That's why he died. Paul's going to explain later in the book how that's effective. But I believe that Jesus died because I'm without excuse. I change my mind about my righteousness and place my hope and faith completely in him. And that, that is where salvation, where eternal life comes from. Would you pray with me? Father God, thank you for telling us this. It's a difficult truth. But we need to know. God, thank you for sending Jesus Christ to, to rescue us. By standing in our place and accepting the punishment we deserve. God, if there are, if there's folks here, this has just clicked for the first time. Lord, I just pray you would work in their heart to just bring real faith into their lives, that by your grace they'd be saved through faith, that they'd just tell you right now, Lord, I get it, I'm lost before you. I will not stand in judgment before you. I need to be pulled to safety by you through the blood of Jesus Christ. And God, thank you that really that's all it takes. We love you. Thank you for your rescue, for your grace. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.